But who knows? It, it's all what the NCAA can prove. NC State did the smart thing this time and lawyered up. They're not going to go down without a fight. That's the way to pr- approach the NCAA, and, and NC State knows that. Now. Yeah, if you if you roll over and you cooperate, they are not going to. There, there's no guarantee that they're going to do anything for you. So, uh, might as might as well roll the dice. Yeah, yeah, you'll end, you'll end up worse off if you do that. And I think every school steadily is learning that. And yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's great that you you recognize this. And the Jackie Moreland thing is something we know around here, although it's probably not as well known. Welcome to an ACC podcast. I'm Lauren Brownlow. And last week we did a little bit of a distraction episode in the mode of my some of my favorite shutdown full cast episodes where they got reader submissions of various disasters. Ours weren't quite disasters. We uh, had stories of lying to children, which are some of my favorite things, but we are a shutdown full cast slash banner society friendly podcast. So I'm really happy to be joined this week by Alex Kirshner, formerly of banner society. Um, I will currently, I don't know. Are you guys going to like maintain that name or have you figured out how that's going to work going forward? Or you're just still figuring things out like everybody else? Unclear because trying to plan anything out more than like two hours in advance in this (laughs) pandemic period is uh, a fool's errand, but hoping to continue doing some work together and uh, have some stuff in the works right now that we're really enjoying. So it's cool. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And I I got Alex on because there's a book coming out with uh, that was written by several members of Banner Society, including Spencer Hall, Richard Johnson, Alex, of course, Jason Kirk, um, and Tyson Whiting? Is that how you say his name? Yeah, right. Tyson. Uh, Tyson is a Tyson. Lo- yeah, Tyson's a longtime SB Nation illustrator, designer, extraordinaire, oh. uh, who's been a friend of ours there for years. And uh, when we all went on a furlough amid the uh, economic downturn back in May, we decided to write a book together. And uh, we spent the last 11, 12 weeks doing it, and it comes out really soon. So we're very excited about it. You can get it at sinful7.com. And it's called The Sinful Seven. Awesome. Yeah. And I, and I know you had some stuff you want to share about the book and we're definitely going to get into that. But and I, I feel like this is somewhat fortuitous for me. And maybe maybe it's like destiny because every week I usually record this podcast around like 8 a.m. on Friday morning and inevitably some piece of news will break because, as Alex said, in this uh, pandemic, in these pandemic times, like hour to hour, things change. So um, I feel like it was it, it's somewhat fortuitous that we were recording at 10 a.m. today, which means I happened to see this tweet from David Teal, which says that uh, pending presidential approval, Notre Dame would be eligible for the ACC championship game. And that I needed to sit with that for a minute. I literally just saw this as I was get, starting to record with Alex. And I was like, we're going to have to talk about this because. Look, I think most rational people understand that the ACC was not going to strong arm Notre Dame into, you know, making its own schedule uh, and saying, good luck, you don't have a conference, so you're just going to have to figure things out by yourself during a pandemic. Like, I think most rational people understand that part, right? Like, I, I, right. Think, so. I think most rational people understand that part. Uh, and I also think that... Uh, on the other side of that same coin, it will be understandable that uh, diehard ACC fans will be a little bit pissed off about this arrangement, despite the business sense that it, it makes for everybody involved. 
Yeah. And it, and it does make some business sense. Like, it, you know, but to ha- I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel about having, I mean, I guess it makes sense if they play a league schedule, you know, to make them eligible for the championship game. And certainly if you're the ACC, you would love to have them in the ACC championship game. I guess unless they knocked off Clemson, in which case you would not. Um, <laughs> but, but like, I can also see the other side of it. Like, okay, okay, okay. Wait, wait, wait. We, we're going to have them play games. You know, that's fine. We'll give them a schedule. But like, why do they get to play in a conference championship game if they don't want to join the conference? So I, I do that part. I am a little bit more sympathetic to. Um, I tend to be anyways, but I also understand the businesses. I don't know. I'm not just, I, I feel like I have to sit with this for a minute. I don't know what to think about it. Sure. All of those, I think, totally, totally natural and valid responses to this. Yeah. I mean, because like, let's say that they are able to maintain their independent status forever, right? In perpetuity. So what? We're going to have this weird season on the record books. I mean, that's assuming we even have a season, which again, we're, we're, we're in this yeah. fictional universe where that happens. Um, but, but if we did, like, you know, we'd have people would be like, what? Notre Dame played in the ACC? Why? They're not in the ACC. That doesn't make any sense. So I don't know. It, it, but maybe, maybe you just look back and say, oh, that was the COVID year and that's it. You know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, this is going to be a year that to the extent football happens, which like you right. said, is very up in the air. It is going to produce some world historic anomalies in a sport that already has a lot of really weird stuff on the record. And uh, I'm ready to embrace that part of it, no doubt. I mean, I still got a lot of questions about how this is going to be done, even remotely safely. I, I don't think anyone's under the, the pretense that it could be done entirely safely, but how it'll be done, even with a semblance of safety. However, if they can somehow cross that hurdle, which is, again, looking doubtful, I'm excited for all the weirdness. I'm very excited for it. Yeah, I, I've been saying, and I, and I remain on, firmly on this train, and I'm, I'm going to keep, you know, blaring this horn as long as I can. And I, I think I came to this realization like three weeks ago or so. I don't know why it took me this long, but I was like, you know what? The safest way to do this, or at least a way to make it way safer than it would currently be now, is to have the football players be the only people on campus, basically. <laughs> like, yeah, probably like, so. I mean, there's just, you can't have them going to class with normal students or even being on campus with normal students because they're, they're clearly not willing to take some of the precautions they need to with normal students. So, no. you know. And, and the problem with this, of course, is that if you have football players as the only ones on campus, which I agree would probably be the, the safest way to do this, then you're sort of giving up the game that your football players are not, in fact, regular students and they are, in fact, there yep. to perform a service for the university. Uh, and suddenly that gets your lawyers into some territory where they don't want to be uh, in future arguments about players being paid and about some of the the wealth in this sport being shared a little bit. Yeah, it's a weird sort of paradox maybe is the wrong word, I guess, but it, it's a weird situation and dilemma that a lot of athletic programs find themselves in because mm-hmm. like basically they would probably, they can't play fall sports safely besides football because it would be too much of a cost, right? To, to play, pay for testing and all of that other stuff for like soccer and cross country and volleyball and all that other stuff. But if you have football be the only fo- fall sport, you're also admitting that that's, you know, that you're giving them some sort of preferential treatment and admitting that that's the only sport that matters because as we all know, it finances all of the rest of them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been that way since I think the very beginning of college sports. It's something that has only gotten more stark as TV contracts have gotten big since the 80s. And, 
you know, I, I don't know if there's much turning back on it, but there might be a way to be ignorant of it uh, if you're a school to the point that you can get away with some things and sort of do some cognitive dissonance. Yeah, because I just I don't know how some athletic programs will survive without it, like almost literally, you know, like if you go a year without it and you still have to pay out scholarships to fall athletes, you save on travel expenses, of course. But if you don't have any football revenue, mm -hmm. I mean, football revenue is a big chunk of everybody's budget, the, the TV money specifically. So. I, yeah, it's a different situation at different schools, you know, yeah. and, and and one of the things that is striking, though, is that, you know, you take a school, LSU is a good example, or, or in Alabama or in Ohio State, football might be pretty directly responsible for well over $100 million of, you know, close to $200 million in revenue that you might bring in. And so, obviously, then there's going to be a lot of bloodletting elsewhere. If you're a Mac school uh, where, you know, your football team brings in, I don't know, maybe 10 of $30 million, then of course the percentages aren't as big that, you know, football is supporting other sports, but also those are likely to be smaller schools that have smaller enrollment that are less yeah. able to handle the general economic blowback created by the pandemic. And so they're in trouble too. And it just becomes, you know, a, a really challenging thing for uh, basically everybody in college athletics. Our FCS programs, do you think in big trouble too financially, or are they talking about playing, you know, sort of their own version of a season? Because without those buy games, like that's a big chunk of their budget too, right? It is a big chunk of their budget too. I saw something the other day. I, I think it was by Chris Vanini in the athletic that was at least, you know, a consideration of FCS playing in spring. Uh, but oh, I think yeah, the, the, I the point, the point that I saw made and would make myself in, in opposition to that is that, you know, if you're not going to do that for FBS, if you don't think that it's a good idea, I'm not sure why it would be for FCS, given that, you know, what FCS schools get out of football in a lot of cases is similar to what a lot of a lot of schools uh, below the top rungs of the power five get out of football, which is it's a big point of pride for your university. It's a, you know, kind of a, a front porch of the school type thing that's designed to get eyeballs on the school and be part of your fall tradition. And if you don't think you can replicate that in the spring, then you know, maybe given the fact that you're making less money on those sports in, in the FCS, it's just not even worth it. I'll be interested to see what what administrators decide. Yeah. I, I Do you think we see a lot of football programs and maybe even, I mean, I don't know about whole athletic departments. I don't know if we're there yet, but do you think we see a lot of that? Do you think they end up borrowing money? Like what are, what are we looking at here from like beyond the power five? Because if the power five isn't playing schools outside of the power five, like that's a big financial hit to a lot of schools. It is. I don't know what they're going to do. And, and I actually think that one thing that is worth exploring here and our friend Matt Brown in his newsletter, Extra Points, has you know, talked about this a little bit. I think that at some point there's going to be some kind of groundswell for a federal bailout of college sports or, or, or a federal uh, assistance package of some kind uh, yeah. to college sports, which sounds ridiculous until you think about all the other things that have gotten those kinds of packages <laughs> yeah. in the last 15 years in America. And if, if Ruth's Chris can get some uh, pandemic, yeah, you know, you get to a point where if, if, you know, higher, it would probably be part of a broader higher education rescue package um, and higher education was included in, in some of the things that were passed back in March. But at some point, if you see in these, you know, states where college sports is a huge deal and these athletic directors and university presidents go to their senators and say, like, we are dying here because we just cannot fund this department for the next couple of years, we need help. 
you might see some political support for, you know, federal money going pretty specifically to help college athletic departments. Uh, I'm not entirely sure that that's a great idea, but I don't think it's necessarily a worse idea than bailing out, you know, airlines and every bank that's ever gotten in any trouble in the United States and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, obviously, the economic contexts of those industries are different, but it could happen. Yeah, it's worth remembering, too, that, you know, as we say, like, it's sports, this is silly. Um, there are still a bunch of people that work even at the smaller levels at those, you know, for those athletic departments at, at various, you know, you know, at various areas of those athletic departments. It's not just coaching staffs, it's administrators, it's media people. I mean, you're already seeing uh, in-house media folk get cut at, at various schools because they can't afford to pay them already. Mm-hmm. Um it's going to impact a lot of people if there's no college football season beyond, you know, just like, oh, we don't get to see our sports. It's not that it's not as simple as all of that. So also, no. you know, these are, these are still Americans with jobs that um, it would wipe out a lot of jobs um, across the country way more than I think people realize, because even on a, you know, uh, even on a lower level college football team, there's still a ton of staffers that work for that team that aren't just coaches like, you know, people that cook the food, the trainers, the all kinds of people. So if, if the programs themselves have to go under, then a lot of people are going to lose their jobs even more so than have already. So yeah, it, it could definitely happen. Um, I hope for the best, but expect the worst. That's 2020. Mm-hmm. Itself, really. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anytime you think that something good might happen, you should just bank on that <laughs> thing not happening. And that's probably how it will go. Yeah, I know. I'm expecting something like the when the vaccine news came out, I was like, oh, something's going to go terribly wrong, isn't it? Um, I don't know what, but something will. Uh, <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, the date to watch here, everybody, is next Wednesday. That's when the ACC presidents are going to meet to figure out what, in theory, they're going to do. And I know they've already asked the NCAA for more time in terms of like what they're going to do with the with fall sports championships, because as we all know, the NCAA is not in charge of football championships at the Division One level. So the football people are like, hey, don't cancel all the fall championships yet, because that's going to put a lot of pressure on us to cancel stuff. And we don't want to do that, basically. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's next Wednesday, though, is uh, what you want to look out for. Um, in ACC land, so to speak. So, okay, now that we've gotten all of that out of the way, the book, tell us about it. What's it about? Yeah, thanks for asking. So we have a book coming out, like I said, um, it's called The Sinful Seven, Sci-Fi Western Legends of the NCAA. Uh, And it's actually a book that's about half fiction, half nonfiction about the history of college sports as we know them today and how they came to be this way. Uh, and what I mean by that is how the governance structures around the sport took shape and how the NCAA that you know and don't love today came to exist, how uh, it got to be that when a, a school does something, it's the players who get punished, even the ones who often weren't involved instead of the coach, uh, how the death penalty came into existence and, and various schools role in facilitating all of that. Uh, it actually starts, the story does, with a real life group of schools that were called, uh, that came to be known as the Sinful Seven, because in the late 1940s, the NCAA passed a, a rule called the Sanity Code, uh, which was actually what they called it. It was its actual name. 
Uh, and it basically uh, outlawed athletic scholarships and demanded that every school in college sports treat uh, athletes the same way that they treated other students. And there were seven schools, Virginia, Maryland, Virginia Tech, VMI, the Citadel, uh, Boston College, Villanova were the seven that basically stood up and said, no, we are not going to follow those rules. Uh, and it kind of comes down to a, a big vote at the NCAA convention where the only thing that the NCAA could do was get these schools kicked out of college sports altogether. Uh, and they tried and they failed. And this kind of led to the NCAA overhauling everything and, and starting a new system of, of how to enforce its mall cop rules. And uh, it, that kind of start, started us on a path to where we are today. So I hope that if you read this book, you think that it's fun because Spencer Hall and Richard Johnson and Jason Kirk uh, wrote a Western story that goes along with this, like as a companion. Uh, and also, I, I hope that you have fun uh, while kind of learning about the history of college sports. I don't know how. I've heard of the Sanity Code, but I had no idea. You know, I would have actually somehow thought, and no offense to my Virginia people who I know listen to this podcast, but I would have thought Virginia would have been on the side firmly of like paying yeah. players. No, you would. Against paying the players. I mean. Yeah, it's one of the most interesting <laughs> things. I think it actually starts to make more sense uh, when you research it and, and you think about it. Absolutely. I mean, there, there was, you know, it, it's kind of like finding out that the like goody two shoes in your class, like the, the big teacher's pet is like also like selling weed out uh, down behind the bleachers uh, <laughs> after, after football practice. Like it's, it's this really weird, surprising thing. But Virginia's rationale was, you know, we consider at Virginia our honor code to be more important than any kind of quote unquote sanity code that the NCAA would put into place. They trusted oh. themselves to, you know, uphold the honor of college sports and higher education more than they trust the NCAA. And when you think about it through that prism, yes. I think that Virginia's stance makes a lot more sense. The one school that I think was extremely, uh, you know, screw you. We just want to pay players because we like doing this. Uh, was actually my alma mater and yes, uh, I knew noted, it, Maryland. Noted, noted ACC <laughs> member, Maryland. Uh, I, I, I was going to guess, actually. <laughs> yeah, I actually felt more pride in my alma mater. Uh, yeah. going going through this research than I have in a while. Um, yeah, Maryland just really wanted to be good at sports and uh, absolutely refused to do anything that would make them less good at football, which, you know, we can see how that worked out in the long run. But uh, yeah, Maryland was kind of the one of those seven that really just made a stance on the grounds of we're going to do what we want because we want to have a good football team. The rest of them had uh, different considerations. You know, a, a handful of them were either military academies or military adjacent. Uh, yeah. And they had concerns about how their students, their cadets would be able to balance athletics and military training under the sanity code. Uh, and then there was uh, Boston college and Villanova had issues with like, you know, we are these big Catholic schools that have longstanding traditions about how we give out scholarships. And we just want to do this ourselves because, you know, the Catholic church and, and big time community institutions had a lot to do with how they did their scholarships. And they just didn't like giving that power over to the NCAA. What if I was going to say that is that makes more sense. But like, what a fascinating group of, of bedfellows that I would have thought not did not have a lot in common. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and Maryland, by the way, I, I happen to know this just because of where um, 
this coach went next, but like this was right around the time that Maryland was really kind of turning into a football juggernaut mm-hmm. under Jim Tatum as mm-hmm. well. Um, and they would, uh, Jim Tatum had a really, really good career at Maryland. Um, and then went on to North Carolina where, um, I remain convinced that North Carolina has a curse on its football program, similar to the, the, the feeling that NC state fans have about like NC state shit. Um, but specifically to North Carolina football. Um, so no one's going to feel sorry for North Carolina fans, which I understand, but um, like Jim Tatum comes to their school and he's building things up and then dies of a tick bite. Yeah, it's um, terrible. And it's, it's yeah. funny because Jim Tatum, you know, I think, and I think most would agree becomes the best coach in Maryland history and then goes on to a pretty good run elsewhere. He gets the job because, you know, uh, this was a handful of years earlier, but Bear Bryant comes to Maryland for one year right after the war. Oh yeah. Does a nice turnaround job at Maryland, uh, kind of using the GI bill and the lack of rules at the time to offer really competitive packages to recruits. Bear Bryant leaves and the president of Maryland, uh, the University of Maryland, Curly Bird, uh, who was not a good guy, you know, big time segregationist, racist, not a good guy, but was extremely committed to football. Um, takes a lot of flack for letting Bear Bryant leave. Uh, and then he finally gets Jim Tatum on board, you know, a handful of years after that. And he's just like, we're not going back. You know, we're not going back to being bad at football. And, yeah. and that's part of, part of, I think, why Maryland takes such a front seat. But, uh, it's interesting you mentioned NC State because we're writing about them too. And, and they yeah. have a, a fascinating history with the NCAA. I think that, that a lot of people don't know about, but in some ways it's the most unfair story, uh, in the whole kind of pantheon of NCAA, uh, enforcement. Yeah, NC State fans are are currently like crying with happiness at hearing a national person say that. Um, <laughs> and it, th- there, I think theirs is a mix of a lot of like bad, bad timing with like uh-huh. the events that when the when their NCAA issues happened, uh-huh. um, mixed with some maybe self inflicted wounds um, in terms of like whether it's the North Carolina Board of Governors or even NC state itself like that. I'm talking more like Jim Valvano here. You're probably talking more about some of the earlier stuff I'm guessing. Right. Sure. Yeah. So Everett case, uh, come, yep. becomes the coach at NC state just after the war, uh, and NC state football, of course, not very good for pretty much it's pretty much its entire history. Uh, Everett case is a really competitive guy in basketball really, you know, does a lot of work to build up NC state. And I would argue that, he kind of builds the foundation there that Valvano, did. Yeah. That Valvano later capitalizes on to become Jimmy V and, and to become the legend that he is. Uh, but one of the problems uh, for Everett Case is that he didn't really care too much about NCAA rules, uh, or at least I don't think he did. Uh, and in 1956, Case goes head to head, mano a mano with Adolph Rupp at Kentucky for a big time recruit from Louisiana named Jackie Moreland. Uh, and Moreland is, you know, a five star before five stars exist, you know, big time kind of small forward, maybe a, maybe a stretch power forward and, and in demand for like 50 schools want to offer this kid a scholarship and, and have him play there. Uh, NC state gets him. Uh, and then NC state people are convinced uh, with some supporting evidence or at least supporting theory, in my opinion, uh, that Adolph Rupp dimes them out to the NCAA. Uh, and the NCAA in just a few months comes down very hard in NC State basketball uh, and gives the entire athletic department a four-year probation 
that included a postseason ban. And this becomes a really big problem for NC State football, which has been bad forever when they put together a dream season under Earl Edwards in 1957. It's the best year NC State has ever had. Uh, They're going to go to the Orange Bowl, except they can't because of what basketball did. Uh, And so they miss out on what would have been uh, still their only really marquee bowl in the history of the program. And, you know, the next year, the ACC loses its bull tie with the orange. So when NC State wins the conference a couple times, you know, later on, both under Edwards and under uh, Lou Holtz and under another coach or two as well, they just don't get to go to any bowl games often, uh, much less the orange bowl. So it's extremely sad and uh, they deserve better. And I think NC State fans, uh, you know, are, are especially ones who were around back then are among the most tortured fan bases really of, of any uh, NC state football fans are of any fan base in college sports. Yeah. It's, it's easy to roll your eyes at a persecution complex among NC state fans until you dig a little bit deeper um, into what, and, and when you really look at what happened under the Valvano years and, and with the NCAA too, like that was something where, the punishment most certainly did not fit the crime and their basketball no. program was absolutely decimated by what yeah. happened, by the way they put some of their own self-inflicted punishment, some of the board of governors, and then some from the NCAA. It was just a real bad mix of things. And if that kind of thing had happened today, I don't think people would have treated it the same way, but it did not happen today. It happened, you know, in the early nineties and, and people freaked out and pearl clutched and we mm-hmm. got what we got. And yeah, God, I I did it. I did a whole entire podcast series about the whole notion of NC State shit, and I did not even think to go back to <laughs> the fifties. Um, but yeah, it's deep seated. Yeah, yeah. I, I I feel for everyone down there for sure. It, it's like, you know, I, I talked to a couple of people while we were researching this book. Which you can buy again at sinful dot com. Uh, little product placement there, and he, one of the things that that comes up recurringly is that. I think NC State fans have a feeling that uh, anytime the NCAA comes down hard on UNC or anytime NC State is doing extremely well in basketball, um, like anytime anything seems to be going really well for them or really uh, poorly for one of their rivals, there is a shoe that is going to drop and it is going to yeah. drop on NC State's face and be no fun for NC State. Yeah, that's that's absolutely yeah. It's a hundred percent a feeling of, among the fan base, and it's hard. You know, you can you can make fun of them or call them fatalistic or whatever it is, but it's hard to you know have things happen over and over again. And that's even in the course, whether it's in a particular game or like you said with the NCAA. And you know, I think you can take a step back and look at what happened with NC State either in the '90s or the '50s or, or whenever. And, and look at what happened with North Carolina and sort of see some of the differences and, and see the contrast and whatever. But I also understand from an NC State fan perspective, you know, it's easier to understand why they would have wanted North Carolina to get punished more harshly, um, considering what has happened to them in the past. And it's, it's a lot easier to understand it beyond just a we don't like North Carolina sentiment um, when you look at it through that lens, you know, and. Uh, and, and now we're waiting eagerly or not eagerly, but uh, waiting to make sure the NCAA doesn't do something stupid with the Dennis Smith Jr. case as well. So <laughs> Right, right. And it feels like they, I, I mean, I'm not going to put anything past them. Yeah, no, you can't. And it's hard because I think they have the only like assistant coach that was proven to um, be like 
actually one of the ones directly distributing the money. Um, but who knows? It, it's all what the NCAA can prove. NC State did the smart thing this time and lawyered up. They're not going to go down without a fight. That's the way to pr- approach the NCAA. And, and NC State knows that. Now. Yeah. If you if you roll over and you cooperate, they are not going to. They are, there's no guarantee that they're going to do anything for you. So uh, might as might as well roll the dice. Yeah, yeah, you'll you'll end up worse off if you do that. And I think every school steadily is learning that. And yeah, I mean, it's I think it's great that you you recognize this. And the Jackie Moreland thing is something we know around here, although it's probably not as well known because um, it was so long ago. But I don't think it's its impact on football is certainly not as well known at all. In fact, I don't think I even knew that it was an athletic department wide situation. Yeah, it, it was a precedent setter, really. I mean, the NCAA at this time uh, was still kind of feeling out how it was going to administer uh, its version of justice after the sanity code collapses when they fail to expel the sinful seven. So you you install kind of a new judicial system in college sports. And this was not the first test of that. The first test of that was actually Kentucky, uh, the same program that uh, pops up in this Jackie Moreland case getting got with a death penalty uh, over a gambling scandal uh, that unfolded there in like 1952. But, uh, you know, NC State was, I think, a a kind of test case for the NCAA uh, in showing how far they could get away with nuking really an entire athletic department for something that demonstrably did not have to do with the entire athletic department. And uh, they did it. They got away with it. And now... Uh, you don't see this much anymore, but the NCAA did use it several more times uh, over the ensuing decades, and it's become part of their toolkit. Yeah, it's and, and they don't like to use it as much anymore. But you know, once you use it once, it, it's hard for a long time to sort of bounce back from that and, and get back to where you need to be. And you know, we saw that, like I said, in the '90s. I mean, NC State's basketball program through a combination of, again, self-inflicted wounds, whether it was self-inflicted punishments or bad hires. Um, just It took forever for them to get even a semblance of a footing back. Um, it took them like a decade, really. Probably like Herb Sendek, the Julius Hodge years and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. It took them that long to get back, like even remotely relevant on the national stage and on the ACC stage. Like it can cripple you. And so, yes, the, the lesson is, as always, as it was then and is now, do not cooperate with the NCAA ever. Definitely not. Definitely not. But I think, you know, NC State basketball in particular, an impressive program insofar as they have managed, it feels like they're kind of always pushing that boulder up a hill, but they have gotten to the mountaintop and not a lot of schools can say that. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's almost what makes it more frustrating for them too, is that they know it has happened. and. um you know, it's interesting, too, because there's a window coming soon, right, where like Roy Williams and Coach K, they're, you know, close to the same age, they're going to retire. If either one of those programs makes a bad replacement hire, like their coach is very young, there's potentially a window there that they can, you know, open and step through. I'm always clumsy with the window metaphor. Um, yeah. like, what do you do when the windows open? I guess you go through it, you step through it. So they're, they're, it's, it's potentially there. But if they, you know, it might be a limited window. So, um, cause as we've seen, especially at North Carolina, when you hire, a, you get, you make a bad replacement hire, they will, they will act quickly to address that and fix it. Um, so you, you have maybe a limited window to take advantage of that. And, um, but they look at like a school like Virginia and that's a school that, you know, it's not impossible to compete with the Dukes and North Carolinas of the world if you make the right hire. So 
you know. No, no, yeah. It, it, what what a really just interesting program that I think has its own place carved into major college sports, and it's it's definitely not the the you know I don't think anyone's going to consider NC State the elite of the elite, but they I think you have to consider NC State a threat and. And, and it's a fun program to play what ifs with if so many things had gone a little bit differently. Yeah. All of my NC State friends and basically my entire podcast series I did was about like a lot of the big what ifs, you know, I mean, even Philip, Philip Rivers, the year after he left, you know, after he moved on and graduated, they had like their best defense in years and years and years. And, but it didn't happen until Philip was gone. And then they had a terrible quarterback. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> wait, really? Why? Like, why did it, you know, why couldn't Philip have had this dominant defense when he was at NC State? But no, this was not meant to be, you know, it's like, yeah, it, it's this constant battle of what ifs and uh, what could be. And then, you know, now football taking the turn that it is around here too, with like Mac Brown getting a lot of these recruits and, and who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what that will even mean? Um, it, again, North Carolina has its own version of this with football specifically. So like, it's the most North Carolina football shit ever to have potentially like a quarterback that could be their best in program history. Not that that's a high bar, by the way, but it's still significant. Yeah, it's, a, it's a bar though. You know, they, they had the bar. great, they had the great Mitchell Trubisky and an actual good quarterback right before that. <laughs> I, I stand Marquise Williams so much, um, who was the guy that played ahead of Mitch. Um, Mitch is a nice kid, so I'm not, I'm not saying anything like that. It's just, no, we wish him well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But like, I love, at least at the collegiate level, you know, to me, it was a no brainer to play Marquise as much as they played Marquise. And I frankly think Larry Fedora should have played him way more because people love, uh, Marquise, his teammates. There's like the it factor with quarterbacks, right? I don't yeah. know. It's, it's an intangible thing, but like, I do think you can see it sometimes. And with, with Marquise, you could really just see it. Like he had it and like his teammates loved him so much and would rally around him. And uh, I never really saw that with Mitch. And I was always kind of confused as to, I thought he was a good quarterback. I thought he'd be an NFL quarterback, but like to see him get drafted where he did was mind boggling to me. <laughs> and yeah, well, sadly it has played out as well <laughs> for, for poor Mitchell. Um, who could have yeah, seen it coming? Uh, I mean, it's not quite a Josh Allen situation, to be fair to Mitch, but like, it's not. <laughs> I or Mitchell. Sure. Yeah, I, I, feel, I feel bad for him. I feel bad for him. It's not. Mitch, it's not. It's not his fault. Yeah. No. What was he supposed to do? Be like, don't draft me here. Huh. Yeah, it's not his fault. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not his fault that NFL teams love uh, love quarterbacks like him. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that not to get too far off track. But yeah, like it is a thing around here too, where it was like NC State was doing well for a while. North Carolina is kind of back on its heels in football, and, and it seemed like things were going well with Dave Doran. And then now Max there, and everyone was like LOLing, and Mac Brown is back, and then they're cleaning up and recruiting in a way that they never have. But then North Carolina shit is also like, oh no, we have a quarterback that could potentially do great things and an exciting season on the horizon, and it might not happen because of a pandemic. <laughs> Classic story. You hate to see it. I mean, it's like, it really is like, you can't make this up um, type of situation. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't know. Um, yeah. What, what other, so are you guys just sort of like, you're sort of weaving, I guess, the fictional and the non-fictional in terms of the way that this played out it, back in the sanity code days? Yeah. I, I think that if you like Westerns and you like little sci-fi elements thrown into your Westerns, uh, 
I, I think a lot of your listeners probably are familiar with Spencer Hall's writing. Uh, he really spun up a story here. And uh, I, I, one of the things I think is fun about this book is that it fits as a fiction book and a nonfiction book. Um, and at the end, we sort of blend them a little bit, but um, it's just fun. I mean, it's, yeah, there's this, I won't give away too much, but because one chapter is already, uh, I think, out on USA Today, um, there's basically uh, a fictional Sinful Seven uh, who Spencer conjured up uh, who make a plan to uh, go after the sheriff uh, who, you know, might sound pretty familiar to the NCAA to people who are reading the book uh, and, you know, maybe take down a train that the sheriff is uh, taken across across the great territory of Lacademia. Uh, so, uh, it's fun. I, I think that people will really like it. And you can get it, if you pre-order it, you can get it for 99 cents or whatever you want to pay uh, with 20% of the profits going to Feeding America. And you oh, can do that, that at sinful7.com. That's so awesome. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure with Western elements and sci-fi elements, um, the foundational parts of it, will pro- it'll probably be clear what the fictional and non-fictional I think it. so. And, <laughs> and it'll be on, it'll be optimized individually for, you know, your iPads, your Kindles, et cetera. And there'll also be a regular old PDF if you like that. Oh, that's so exciting. A PDF. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah some people is- like PDFs, you know? Interesting. A book on PDF. Well, how, yeah. how long is it? Uh, I'm not sure what it, I think how many pages it will come out to depends on like which platform you're using it on. Right, right. Uh, it's like 250 pages in google docs uh, like 90,000 some words um so pretty pretty solid sized book i think you can, shouldn't have too much problem burning through it in a weekend if you're interested um we haven't decided for sure when we're going to put it out yet but i would expect that it'll be very soon awesome that's so great yeah you guys have to pre-order that as as everybody here knows this is a very um I mean, should I group you all under the Banner Society umbrella still, or like? Yeah, I don't you know, we're all we're all we're all kind of an internet football writing family there. I would say. Yeah, or like the the formerly of SB Nation, or the uh, I don't know what to refer to you all as. I don't want to refer to you as that though. I'd rather refer to you we as transcend Banner. labels. You, <laughs> you really do. I mean, it's true though. But the shutdown full cast fam, shutdown full cast. Yeah. Case, you know, I don't know, but I I. You know, this is a very supportive a, a podcast that is very much supportive of those people and wants them to. As are we of the ACC of an ACC podcast. Yes, they, you guys have been great, and I'm big fans of all of you. And um, we all hope to hear more from you guys soon, and hopefully as a collective, if that's possible. So it's really exciting to see the book come out, and you know, be able to sort of get to read all of your all of your voices in that kind of space. That's that's awesome for everybody. Thanks for your support, Lauren. We're we're really excited about it and cannot wait to share it with everybody. Oh, I did have one question. So are the AC, yeah. like are the teams that were at the actual Sinful Seven, are there any character elements of those of those institutions that sort of find it find their way into the fictional elements of this book? Yes. For oh, sure. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I figure as much. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that you will you if you read it, you'll you will get who is who pretty quickly. So one of one of the uh, one of the one of the characters will be talking about the ground. I'm assuming. Could be yes. <laughs> oh my god! No, I, I'm not poking fun at you, Virginia people. I do it out of love. You know, I'm um, supportive of you guys as well. And of course, <laughs> of course. Uh, 
but it, um, it'll be fun for you guys as as Virginia people to be able to pick out you know what elements refer to you and and that'll be awesome and you'll I'm sure you'll be able to also see which elements refer to Virginia Tech and Maryland. Nobody is spared. Nobody is spared. <laughs> right. Like yeah, that's that's awesome. And yeah, you, you can be very proud of your school's non-fictional uh, role in this. I, I just I still can't help but like go over those schools in my mind and just think like, wow, what's what's what a strange group of allies, you know? Yeah, uh, you said it best. Odd bedfellows, but yeah. uh, they they in a way they all performed a service, you know. And and it's it's a good story, uh, a, a good real life story, and ho- hopefully we'll tell it well in this book. Was it a was it like was some of the sanity code stuff? Did it have to do with the post war environment at all? Like, did that play a role? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So I, that's a great point. I think part of the uh, reason that this happened, a big part, maybe the prevailing reason that it happened, is that World War II sort of created even starker competitive imbalances in college oh, yeah. football. Uh, the the most obvious example of this is Notre Dame under Frank Leahy. Uh, you know, frankly, he is a naval officer. He's a football coach. He leaves Notre Dame to join the Navy, becomes a very big time naval officer serving all over, including at Pearl Harbor. Uh, he comes back after World War II and recruits a bunch of players who served under him or in the service with him uh, who are like in their mid to late 20s at this point. Yeah. Uh, and all, and there was just no, Notre Dame's an independent. So there's no rule telling Notre Dame they can't do this because the NCAA really does not have national rules at this point with any teeth whatsoever. Uh, and Notre Dame uses this combination of sort of gaming the system to recruit adults and to compensate them generously using the GI bill and a lack of oversight to build the most dominant dynasty in college football history. So from 1946 to 49, uh, Notre Dame doesn't lose. And I think they, they get three claimed national championships out of the deal. And I think that they, as well as uh, Army around this time, because West Point had great football teams that were built in sort of a similar way, uh, really brought a lot of attention to just the, you know, complete lack of uh, a level playing field. And so some people decided that maybe it was time to take a look at how they could fix that. And and so they, uh, you know, the answer to that was the sanity code. And uh, the sanity code, of course, didn't last long because of the actions of those seven schools. So I guess the moral of the story of, and maybe of this whole podcast is that Notre Dame um, has been parented poorly throughout its history. Notre Dame honestly used to be super cool. I mean, it's, it's, that's one of my, my over, one of my overarching impressions. Like we all love to make fun of Notre Dame now. And trust me, I very much, very much love to make fun of Notre Dame now. It's a a great pastime, but they were cool. I mean, they were sort of like a renegade school that just didn't care what anybody said and did what they wanted and crushed teams for, you know, a couple different generations there. Um, you know, obviously starting with Newt Rockney, you know, in the twenties and, uh, you know, they, they sort of skipped a few years of being absolutely dominant, but, you know, they continued to win a bit under Elmer Layden, uh, and then Leahy just built kind of an unstoppable dynasty. And then they took another break for a few years and then Eric Parsegian comes around and then they're good again. And then, you know, yeah. get, get a decade after that, you got Lou Holtz and now, now you're, you see how kind of. Once Lou Holtz comes in, you start to see how Notre Dame stops being cool. Like it's sort of like a, 
uh, a graph just going up, 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 and then it kind of flattens out, starts going down. And to be fair to Notre Dame, like the, the World War II era and post-war era of, of college football and college athletics in general, quite frankly, was really um, was really pretty wild and did not have a lot of <laughs> restrictions on it. And you often saw a lot of grown adults, uh, grown, grown ass men playing for <laughs> for schools and you know, transferring between schools. And, and it was a, it was a pretty wild time in that way. So Notre Dame was not the only program that was doing things like that. They just did it better. Um, no, for sure. Else. People think yeah. that college sports is like unregulated and kind of, uh, not tame right now. And it used to be 20 times more so. Oh yeah. And especially around that time, because guess what? The world had bigger priorities. So you know, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. And you even saw that with the Spanish flu pandemic too, was, which was like, all right, we're going to try to throw these football games together. If we can't, we can't because people are going off to war. And that was a way more common reason to not play football than like the pan, than, than a pandemic at that time. So, um, it, it was, uh, that, it almost makes it impossible to compare it to what's happening now because there was an actual world war going on that a lot of people were fighting in. So, you know, it was like, yeah, there's this flu thing, but also people are dying every day in this war. So, <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, I, I tried to dig into that a little bit and realized it's not really something I, maybe the polio situation would have been a better comparison to now because like yeah, the, with the world war, like that was just, it made it, that was almost everything that was on people's minds every day. And you can understand why the, the flu, it seemed like at least in newspapers I was coming through around here, got barely a passing mention, except for like, Hey, North Carolina school president died of the flu. And then his replacement died six months later of the flu as well. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it was just like, but also there's this war going on and people are uh, dying every day. So yeah. Anyway, college football has long been a way wilder place than we even knew and uh, perfect for your book. So sinful, the sinful7.com or sinful7.com? We actually got both URLs. Oh, so perfect. Either one would work. That's awesome. And it's a great name, too. It's very catchy. Um, everybody go buy that. Um, 99 cents. Come on. Like, that's nothing. So buy the book. Yeah, it's easy for sure. We'd love to have you. All right. Um, Alex, thank you so much. Please keep us updated on everything going on with you guys and where we'll be able to find you next whenever, whenever you know that. Um, and hope things are going well for you same lauren you guys as well and thanks for having me on all right until next week everybody mm-hmm.